0: Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where week by week we break down and review a movie based on a link to the previous week's movie. I'm Ed Howes and I'm joined by my co-host, Madeline Gould.
1: Hi Ed.
0: Hey Gould, how you doing?
1: That was, yeah I'm alright, um, that was a bit of a kind of a, hi Ed, I didn't mean <laughs> for it to come out that way, I'd say it again, hi Ed.
0: Hey, there you go. Um, yeah, actually.
1: I'm all right. What have you been watching? Oh, I've had a really nice watching week this week, actually. Um, I went to the cinema to see Asteroid City. Now, I think you have also seen Asteroid City. I have indeed. Give me a broad mm. thumbs up, thumbs down.
0: I didn't have a very good time.
1: Oh, no. I'm so sorry.
0: I didn't enjoy the film very much.
1: I mean, that. well, that
0: yeah. Yeah. I say that. L- I, I love Wes Anderson. I've been a big Wes Anderson fan in the past. Asteroid City left me real cold and a little bit bored yeah. which I don't think I've ever been bored during a Wes Anderson film before um, and yet, yeah, it didn't do it for me at all it, there were too many characters doing there was too much sort of just stuff going on none of it was very focused for like an hour and what was it an hour and 35 minutes yeah I just yeah I, I felt a little bit kind of lost and there was stuff in it that I liked there were performances that I liked ah, but here's the thing I spent a lot of my time sitting there going hmm which actors do I think are taking to the Wes Anderson style better than which other actors. And if that's the sort of thing I'm thinking about, and if I'm thinking about the technicalities of shooting particular scenes, then something about the film isn't working for me. And Mm. it was the narrative, which is really disappointing for me because actually people always talk about Wes Anderson and they just talk about the style, Mm. the visual style. They talk about the music. Nobody seems to notice the fact that his films actually always are laser focused Mm. on plot and character. And this I didn't feel was. Anyway, that was my take on it. I sense that you might have a different take. Um,
1: Not entirely dissimilar. I think I was warmer towards it than you were. I left the film feeling like I need to think really hard about what I think that was about. And I was like, ah, actually, (laughs) if I need to interrogate it as closely as I think I do then maybe Mm. it isn't I thought it looked gorgeous all his films look gorgeous I thought everyone was good in it I didn't necessarily connect to any of it it was fine I probably won't watch it again but I'm glad I've seen it I and it certainly isn't my favorite favorite of his films at Mm. all there were maybe some interesting things in there about the creative process I thought were quite interesting but I think because it had that element of writing that kind of that sort of spotlight Mm. on the creative process and actors and stuff maybe it made me feel like it was a bit more of like an in joke with him and his mates it's like I'll get all of my actor friends who I know and we'll make a film about what it's like to make a play and won't that be great and it's like okay okay, Wes actually no I mean I was warmer towards it than you were I'm not going to rave about Mm. it. I probably no. would say to people like, Yeah, if you're a fan of Wes Anderson, it's definitely worth having a look when it finally catches up with all his other stuff on Disney Plus, which will probably yes. be quite soon. Did the did the comedy land for you? I uh, know I didn't find it funny at all.
0: Yeah. I think it was supposed to be. Oh really? Yeah, I felt the same way about it that I felt when I watched The Life Aquatic, in which right. the comedy doesn't land for me either. Because this thing there are two big laughs in the trailer that actually when you see them in the film don't quite land in the same way and they're not... Maybe it. Maybe the film was just going for rise smiles. He doesn't do sort of big belly laugh raucous comedy, obviously, but his his films have always been funny in the dialogue, witty.
1: It is, it's witty. There is definitely a Wes Anderson patter oh, yeah. in the kind of dialogue and the tone that everybody speaks in. It's actually quite stylized, isn't it? It was laid on very thick in this. There, I do find something quite charming about it. Like, I think that, you know, you can tell a Wes Anderson film both by looking at it and by listening to it, you can just tell from the way the characters speak that it's a Wes Anderson yeah. film. Which is lovely. Yeah. In this film, did those stylistic choices serve fundamentally the characters and the and the story that was trying to be told? No, because I came away thinking, I don't really care about any of these people and I certainly don't know what happened.
0: Sure. I I know what Mm. happened
1: in the plot. I don't know what happened in the film. And I do think they're different things. So I saw that. And then as a palate cleanser, we watched Constantine. (laughs) Is that uh, Keanu Reeves? It's Keanu Reeves and Ra- Rachel Weiss and Tilda Swinton and um, obviously Peter, St- is it Peter Stormare? Is that how you say his name? Stormare, Stormare?
0: I'm not sure. I don't know why I was thinking about it. I've got no idea. He's <laughs> one of my
1: favourite, oh, it's that guy actors. I love him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's great. He pops up as Satan at the end. That's pretty good. It's big and daft and stupid and we had a great time.
0: I've never seen it. Uh, you? I think I've like caught little bits of it when it's been on the telly, but yeah, I've never actually sat down and watched it. I
1: mean, it's everything you'd hope. for it's pretty daft it's got it's got quite a few oh it's that guy guys actually oh, yeah? yeah it's definitely i mean it's on it's on amazon prime you know you could definitely have a worse night than sitting and filling your face and watching constantine so
0: <laughs> yeah that does sound like fun
1: so what about you what about so you've seen asteroid city
0: yeah so i've, I've seen asteroid city i've also watched a couple of animated movies in sort of Ooh. anticipation of a forthcoming discussion on animated movies exactly
1: tune in next week dear listener
0: yes indeed but uh, i don't want to talk about those now i'll talk about those when we discuss the animated movies the other thing i started watching this week is uh, jim's been trying to get me to watch hannibal for a while oh yeah Uh, not the movie the tv series and yes so we're about four or five episodes in and and, yeah quite enjoying it it's very
1: slow isn't it there
0: are some great performances it's interesting it's like there's two different shows going on that are kind of at war with each other you know what i mean there's the story that you're really interested in which is the story of hannibal lecter and um uh i've forgotten the other character's name will graham will graham yes thank you that's the story you're really interested in but then you've got the sort of monster of the week thing which feels kind of at odds with it because you've always got to have these csi people coming in with their banter and it it just it feels in those moments more like a fairly standard network TV police procedural, like CSI or Bones or something. And I can kind of live without that. Like, I love those programmes if I'm watching those programmes, but if I'm watching the story of Hannibal Lecter and Will Graham, I don't want to be sidetracked by bantering CSIs. However, I... I broadly enjoying it, so that will continue
1: well, you know that um Mads Mickelson is my number one heartthrob is he really? I did not know that he is indeed I, uh, <laughs> I, I I love him very
0: much um have you seen have you seen the hunt? Yes, what a movie
1: what a movie I actually when I was working at Riverside Studios in London as an usher, they had mm-hmm. a, I, I ushered a double bill of feston and
0: The Hunt. Oh my God. What a bleak evening. Can you imagine <laughs> how
1: snuggly the jumper was that I had to put on when I got home?
0: <laughs> in fact... Oh my God.
1: Ed, that was when we were living together. So that was... Was it? Yeah, that was back when, back in the days of our bungalow in Ealing. Mm. When I was working at Riverside Studios, yeah, that was unbelievably bleak. I mean... Both incredible films, but a little bit like we were talking about the other week when we were talking about the David Lynch double bill that I couldn't I couldn't stick the landing on. It's like you've got to be really careful with your double bills because you could just want to like, you know, climb under a duvet (laughs) and never leave, you know. But yeah, both absolutely yeah, amazing films, amazing films.
0: I would happily watch The Hunt again. I don't know that I'd watch Festen again. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, um, I get it. I thought it. it was great, but it, yeah, I I was like, okay, I'm glad I've seen that so I know what it is, but I don't need that again.
1: Well, I think cuz The Hunt it's it's masterful filmmaking. It's definitely worth it if you if you like if you like something that's quite hard work and it looks great. The performances are unbelievably good. But don't watch Feston first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Because it, it is it isn't you won't have a very good time. <laughs> oh, I'm always happy to talk about Mads Mickelson. Hasn't he got a lovely face?
0: He's got a very lovely face and, and a fine voice.
1: A gorgeous voice. And he does nice acting with his nice face, so that's very good.
0: And he is currently the villain in Is it Guardians of the Galaxy. It is not Guardians of the Galaxy. Is it Fast X, Fast Ten? It is not Fast Ten your seatbelts, no. It, Fast ten your <laughs> That That is the joke. That is the joke in the title. Is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's extremely good. I really, I mean, kudos. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, he is currently the villain in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny.
1: Oh, of course. Well, I don't know. What Are you going to go and see that, Ed?
0: Gem wants to see it. I don't know when we're going to find time to do that, possibly at the weekend. But uh, as we're recording, it's the opening weekend, I think, for Barbie and Oppenheimer. So yeah. we might do the... Uh, Barbie Oppenheimer Double Bill. Yeah. Although that might end up being pushed back till next.
1: I was well up for Barbie until I saw the trailer. Mm. Oh, interesting. And now I (laughs) now I don't want to watch that film anymore.
0: I will watch it. I anticipate that I'll enjoy it, but I do have horror about what it will lead to. Like Mattel reportedly has like something like forty movies in the works based on their toys. Oh god. Yeah, there's a Hot Wheels movie that's that's definitely in the works, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and it's just that is going to be the the new superhero movie that's going to be the next 10-15 10-15 years of movies Toy movies like movie blockbusters Is going to be movies Based on toys To feed nostalgia For your childhood So on the one hand It fills me with horror But on the other hand It's nice to know What I'll be complaining about When I'm 50 Yeah
1: It's, it's nice to <laughs> be able I mean? To plan for your future You know Exactly
0: uh, Why uh, What What about the trailer Put you off
1: There were just a couple of jokes And I was like I was hoping for more than this But maybe There is something Maybe the trailer Is set up that way And actually what we've seen in the trailer is going to be the first 10 minutes and then the rest is going to be something totally different but I can't I don't think mm. I can cope with a whole movie of like look it's like your Barbie to- toys but they're human people you sure. know what I mean <laughs> and you know Oppenheimer I am keen because I love Killian Murphy
0: you're a bit funny about Christopher Nolan yeah
1: me? I just I just don't think he's quite as good as all that I also mm. I, I'm also aware I haven't seen Tenet in fact I actually I haven't seen Interstellar I gave up on Christopher Nolan after the Dark Knight Rises I, I'm just not that bothered like it, the stories that he is telling don't appeal mm. to me and his filmmaking isn't special enough for me to go and see something outside of what I'm interested in seeing
0: do you know what I mean I do um I mean I think I think we're gonna disagree about about is the, the sort of special quality of his filmmaking yeah sure um but i I absolutely understand where you're coming from I, I didn't like tenet at all and actually if you speak to Jem about Tenet it's the funniest thing in the world because she <laughs> hated it so much <laughs> she hate like I will bring it up just to see her explode yeah I, I but yeah I, I didn't like it very much Christopher for me is one of those filmmakers who when when he's telling a story that is of interest to me So I think the three Batman movies are great in varying degrees. Inception, I love. Dunkirk is a bit of an outlier, but I think Dunkirk is fucking brilliant. Okay, And particularly having seen it, I think with Christopher Nolan, you've got to see it on the biggest screen you can with the loudest sound system. The whole point of his movies is to hit you in the chest. And I think people complain about the sound mixing and not being able to sort of hear bits of dialogue and whatever. That I think is always intentional.
1: yeah. I agree.
0: He doesn't want you necessarily to be focusing on the dialogue. The trouble with Tenet was just all of the dialogue was exposition, exposition, exposition. And that's a problem. That's something yeah. that a trap that he falls into quite often when he's is trying to deal with huge concepts. So Interstellar was a bit exposition heavy as well, um, which is why I've not watched it since I saw it at the pictures because mm. it just, it left me a little bit cold because of that. Um, when he's focused on giving you a, a sort of, a punch in the chest mm. that is what Christopher Nolan does really really well and that was what Dunkirk was like throughout it was experiential mm. filmmaking it felt as close to being there as you can get without you know actually getting shot at mm-hmm. okay <laughs> if Interesting. that makes sense yeah yeah, yeah so I, I, I don't know I've not seen Dunkirk on a small screen yeah. I don't know that it would necessarily work as well as it did on the IMAX I'll watch Oppenheimer and see what I think
1: I'm interested do you know what if it wasn't Christopher Nolan there, there's nothing else about the film that puts me off and, and it being Christopher Nolan Nolan doesn't put me off. So I, I probably will go and see it because the chances of me watching it when it goes onto the small screen are quite slim. So I'm sure. better off watching it um in the cinema. So Ed, um speaking of Barbie. Yes. Oh yeah. Who directed that and what are we watching this week?
0: Well, it's funny you should say. Um... So this week's movie, uh, suggested by me, is Greta Gerwig's 2019 adaptation of Little Women. Yes. Um, The link was, because we watched The Virgin Suicides last week, that was a film sort of nominally about a group of teenage sisters, so I thought... Let's watch another film about a group of teenage sisters. Well, I say teenage, teenage into their twenties. Have you ever read the book? No, nope. I've never, never read the book. Never seen an adaptation of which there have been a few. Yes, yeah, so I was coming to this completely cold. I knew nothing about the mm. story or anything. Well, do you want to uh, give us a little synopsis? Uh,
1: yeah, sure. I mean, in keeping with the grand tradition of this podcast, I haven't prepared anything.
0: No, that's absolutely fine. I don't.
1: I just, d- I just uh, don't feel just like wing it. It's not how we do things around here. <laughs> no.
0: So the runtime, according to IMDb, is two hours and 15 minutes which i believe translates to 135 seconds i'm ready ready? okay three two one
1: So Little Women is uh, the story of the March sisters Um, and it is during the American Civil War and they live in the north, I think Massachusetts. Anyway, and it's about um, them coming of age, finding love and happiness and success and working out what that means to them uh, against the backdrop of being quite poor um, and their father being away at war, and uh, the main character is Joe. Um, she's basically brilliant, and everyone wants to be Joe, but they have to come to terms with the fact that they probably are Amy, Meg, or Beth, who dies. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's it. That's my synopsis. It's a, it's a <laughs> synopsis. <laughs> All right,
0: fair enough. That was that was fifty three seconds. So you you had a little bit of time to play with.
1: I'm so, I'm so sorry. I could tell. Should I tell you more?
0: Oh, by all means.
1: Well, I mean, there's a boy called Laurie um, who lives next well, door. there are
0: there are several boys.
1: There are several boys, but there is mostly Laurie who you spend most of the book thinking Joe will marry, but then when he proposes, she turns him down, and then. Um, he actually marries Amy, but that yeah, and that's fine. And Joe uh, and Joe's <laughs> yeah. a writer. There you go.
0: Jo, and Joe's a writer. <laughs>
1: Joe's a writer. Okay,
0: that was a, fa- a fabulous synopsis. Thanks, so. Ed. Um, I'm
1: really um, yeah. No, you
0: know. I I stopped the count when you stopped initially, so I don't know how much longer you talk for. I, I
1: mean, God knows, Ed. Do you want to take us through some housekeeping?
0: Yeah, I can do that. So, Little Women, 2019, uh, directed by Greta Gerwig. This is a third directorial feature after nights and weekends and ladybird and she has just had enormous success with her fourth with her fourth feature barbie now we are recording this before barbie's opening weekend so i might end up looking like a complete idiot um (laughs) but i'm fairly confident it's going to be huge.
1: I think it's going to do well, isn't it? I think it might,
0: yeah. Uh, Greta Gerwig uh, wrote the screenplay, as she has done for her previous movies, adapted from the classic novel by Louisa May Alcott, who also wrote a couple of sequels, uh, Little Men and Joe's Boys, amongst several other novels. She was quite a prolific writer. Uh, It's a sort of Semi-autobiographical uh, story, I, I believe, is one of the uh, interpretations of the novel anyway. Um, well, actually, the, the novel was two novels that sort of came together to form Little Women.
1: Little Women as we know it, and what we saw in the film, is actually Little Women and its sequel, Good Wives.
0: Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Executive producers on the movie, we've got Evelyn O'Neill, who worked with Greta Gerwig previously on Ladybird. Uh, we've got Rachel O'Connor who produced all of the Tom Holland Spider-Mans, and also The Post, um, which featured Meryl Streep. So there's a little uh, Meryl Streep connection, connection there. there and here. Other executive producers, we've got Adam Merrins, who uh, was a producer on Baby Driver and Straight of Compton, amongst other credits. And the other executive producer on here is Aaron Milchan, um, who has quite a back catalogue of production credits, dating back to the 70s. Oh. Uh, well, actually, his first credit on IMDb, as a producer, is on a film called Black Joy in 1977, Mm -hmm. um, for which he's technically uncredited on the movie, but IMDb doing its work there, um, making sure that people are credited when they need to be. He sort of really came of age as a producer in the 80s with some uh, big success on things like Mike Scorsese's King of Comedy uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America Terry Gilliam's Brazil other credits Pretty Woman he produced JFK the Oliver Stone film both versions of Man on Fire
1: is one of those versions does it have oh no I'm thinking of something else it's Denzel Washington isn't it not Nicolas Cage often confused for each other you know
0: they are <laughs> <laughs> yeah Den- Den- Denzel Washington uh, starred in the remake of Man on Fire yeah, um, which is a remake of the 1987 movie that starred scott glenn oh who we saw last week in the virgin suicide did indeed um more recent credits for arnon milchen uh, yeah, sort of la confidential in the uh, 90s but all the way up to uh, contemporary movies bohemian rhapsody he produced um also the lighthouse which did you see the lighthouse not
1: yet i it's ha. i cannot wait to watch the lighthouse but i am um, i'm sort of saving it for when I'm in the right mood and I haven't quite worked out what that mood is yet.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure I could tell you what mood that is. Yeah, it's it's really intense. You need to be in the darkest room possible yeah. with no distractions. Okay. You just Yeah, you just need to be looking at it.
1: Right. Well, I, <laughs> I I, I'm going to wait until I've got my blackout blinds sorted for my front room and then I'll watch it. I'll make sure it's the first That'll film I watch to um, oh, to test out my blackout <laughs> blinds. Yeah,
0: yeah. Fabulous. Um, so moving on a little bit with the housekeeping very quickly, we've got the uh, director of photography, Yorick Lassau, uh, who spent sort of most of his career working in France. But since landing in America, uh, there are some movies that might be a bit more familiar to us, including Arbitrage, the Richard Gere movie, and Only Lovers Left Alive. Ah
1: interesting
0: the editor Nick Hoey worked with Greta Gerwig on Ladybird and again on Barbie production designer we've got uh, Jess Goncher who's got quite an interesting career uh, so he worked on Capote and Moneyball He's done loads of Coen Brothers movies, so uh, very quickly reel those off. No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, Serious Man, True Grit, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Inside Llewyn Davis, Hail Caesar. He's sort of been the Coen's go-to production designer for a little while now. Uh, Art direction on the movie is uh, provided by a team that is overseen by the supervising art director Chris Farmer. Um, who previously worked with Jess Gonchar on The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, some of his other credits include In Time, Logan and Man of Steel. The set decorator is Claire Kaufman, uh, who's done loads of telly, including Castle and American Horror Story. And we can see her latest work in Oppenheimer.
1: So you can do a double bill about do Oppenheimer bill. and see people who've worked on Little Women.
0: Exactly, <laughs> which is quite nice. Um, the costume designer is actually quite incredible she's got such a great cv um jacqueline duran um yeah so she's done loads so working with joe wright she did pride and prejudice atonement anna karenina pan darkest hour and cyrano she worked she got a start working with mike lee on uh, well actually as uh the assistant costume designer on topsy turvy he then hired her as costume designer on all or nothing she did vera drake happy go lucky mr turner and peter lou uh, she's done the costumes for Matt Reeves uh, Batman and uh, she's also provided the costume for Barbie uh,
1: <laughs>
0: which I can only imagine is a monster costume job
1: yeah but also I can imagine like a costumer's absolute dream
0: oh yeah I'd have thought I thought
1: so. I, I just it must have been such a pleasure
0: like uh, I've I've not I've not had a peek, but I assume the wardrobe department on Barbie is enormous. I,
1: yeah, it must be. <laughs> uh,
0: finally, we've got the music uh, supplied by Alexandra Desplat, who's done loads of Wes Anderson movies, uh, so Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, Isle of Dogs, yeah, Asteroid City, and uh, oh, French Dispatch. Other credits include The Queen, Siriana, uh, Benjamin Button. Is also uh, forthcoming work will be on Del Toro's Frankenstein, which will be the third time he's worked with Guillermo Del Toro, having done the music for Shape of Water and Pinocchio.
1: Hey, he has also—I think he did the music for Ladybird as well. So that he's worked with Greta Gerwig before, I think.
0: Oh, did he? I missed that. I think
1: so, but um, well caught. No, I am. I, um, I was uh, looking him up mm-hmm. for reasons.
0: For reasons. Oh, oh, I see. I see. <laughs> Goodness only knows what you've chosen for next week. <laughs> or, or yeah,
1: I mean maybe or have I or maybe it's a double bluff and maybe this is all part of a an elaborate psychological trick.
0: Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll be very happy if we end up watching Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh,
1: okay. Well, it's not Grand Budapest Hotel, I'm afraid. Sorry. Damn.
0: So moving on very quickly to the cast, we've got Sesha Ronan, who plays Joe. Florence Pugh plays Amy. Emma Watson as Meg and Eliza Scanlon as Beth. We've got Laura Dern as Marmee, the uh, the mother of the four girls. Timothy Chalamet as Laurie, the love interest from next door. Uh, sort of next door. <laughs> um, Chris Cooper as his father, Mr Lawrence. Uh, James Norton as John Brooke. Louis Garrel as Friedrich Baha, um, who is the love interest of Joe. Uh, Meryl Streep as Aunt March. Tracy Letts, who I know mostly as a playwright. Yes. Um, Tracy Letts as Mr. Dashwood. Bob Odenkirk as Father March, and Jane Houdyshell as Hannah. The film was made for a budget of forty million dollars and took at the box office two hundred eighteen point nine million dollars.
1: Blimey!
0: A little over four times its budget. No, nope, that's terrible maths. That is well over four times its budget. <laughs> <laughs> that is. That's that's over five times its budget.
1: Hey, the people don't tune (laughs) in for maths, Ed. They tune in. Uh, they'd
0: better not, because they'd be bitterly disappointed. How searing hot takes. <laughs> Stay in school, kids. Seriously. <laughs> just uh just rounding out the housekeeping, it was nominated for six Oscars. Best picture, best actress for Sesha Ronan, best supporting actress for Florence Pugh, best adapted screenplay for Greta Gerwig, and Best Music. Uh, it won one Oscar for its costume design for Jacqueline Duran, and this was her second Oscar after winning one for Anna Karenina, And that's my housekeeping.
1: Thank you. What a tidy house. Now, Ed, um, I just want to know from the off, what did you think of this film?
0: I really, 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 really enjoyed it.
1: Good. Me too. I thought it
0: was a big, warm hug of a movie. I'm going to use the word warm repeatedly Uh, during this conversation. I think people might grow sick of the word, it will cease to have any meaning. Um, But yeah, it is just such, such a lovely, lovely, lovely movie. I had a big smile on my face for huge chunks of it.
1: It's, I think it's scrumptious. (laughs) Nice, good word. (laughs) Something that I think is very clear in the film, and this is deliberate, in the way that it the way that that family of women is styled, the way that they are, the way that they are babbling and talking over each other. Every single person who encounters that family unit in the film is enchanted by them, drawn in by them, made to feel like part of the family and that's exactly how I felt as an audience member. I felt like I wanted to be part of that family and the film made me feel like I was and that's a really special achievement I think.
0: Yes it really is. And you you mentioned the way they talk the, the dialogue is wonderful the way they just they talk over each other and it just feels so natural yeah. and very funny
1: yeah so funny
0: right uh, we're, well where, where would you like to start our discussion
1: um well let's start with i guess the kind of story and plot um now what's interesting is this film is not linear this film is told mm using flashbacks and flash forwards and all sorts of kind of timey-wimey trickery and uh, that isn't how the book is and that isn't how the other film is it's told completely linearly what did you think of that the kind of jumping back and forth in time
0: early on i have to say i had a little bit of narrative whiplash yeah okay like there was uh, like the first half an hour of the film probably i wasn't entirely sure where or when we were supposed to be and actually that that was a feeling that did persist through the film to some extent um but I kind of just trusted it and the performances and dialogue and the, the sheer energy of it actually the energy of it sort of carried me through and I just it made me just trust that I was going to all would come clear and all did come clear yeah um so by the end I did understand the story and the stuff where I felt like I was missing things, I was actually able to just fill in the gaps for myself.
1: So, like, was there anything that you knew going into the film? Did you? Was there anything?
0: I knew one thing. Yeah, I knew that Beth dies.
1: I was gonna say, is um, it that Beth dies?
0: Because yeah, that that was uh, that was an episode of Friends years ago. Um, spoiled that for me. Yeah, I know.
1: (laughs) That's the thing that everybody knows about Little Women. Did that in any way hamper your enjoyment of of watching it unfold? It didn't
0: hamper my enjoyment. I would have liked to have gone into it not knowing, uh, but as you say, it is something that everybody knows, whether that's because it's just something everybody knows, or whether it's because Rachel ruined it for everybody Um, (laughs) back in 1990, whatever. Um, Because it's something that we know, it's like Romeo and Juliet dying, you know what I mean? The inevitability of it adds a sort of uh, a layer of poignancy that you don't really get when you come into it cold so much anyway because she she is ill for most of the film because of the way the narrative is cut uh, and sort of stuck back together
1: and i think that kind of with the inevitability of beth dying one of the things that i think was quite clever about the film was how Quite a lot of stuff was kind of you you knew what the result would be before before you saw how you got there. So, like, okay, we knew that we knew we know Beth's gonna die because Rachel ruined it for us, but also we know that Joe isn't going to marry Laurie because very early on we see Amy and Laurie meet in France, in Paris, and she says, I can't believe that Joe turned you down. So we know that there will be a proposal and we know that she'll say no. But it doesn't stop the emotion of us getting there. No, not think. at all.
0: And well, it's interesting actually. Um, from that very first scene with Amy uh, and Laurie in Paris, I I wanted those two to get together. That was the uh, the love relationship that I wanted to be resolved by the end. Ah, oh, Florence Pugh, so brilliant. God, isn't she gorgeous? She was so clearly in love with him. She's so excited to see him. She stops the carriage. She runs huge hug I just I was like oh you are in love with this man and I I, I found her in that moment so endearing that I just I wanted her to have that I wanted her to yeah to 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 achieve to achieve lorry
1: <laughs> clever you have achieved Laurie. you have unlocked bonus Laurie <laughs> achievement unlocked. <laughs> i think that that was a really clever thing for for her to do because mm-hmm. if you follow the story linearly you root for joe and Laurie, and then when amy and Laurie end up together it feels a bit weird it feels a bit wrong and i, I just think that was a really clever thing to do especially in terms of bringing this story to a fresh audience what a clever thing to do Did did she write the screenplay, Greta Gerwig? Yes, yes, yes she, she did. did, didn't she? I think it's a fabulous screenplay. Yes,
0: I really, really like it. Did you feel like there were some holes here in it, like, just like just just sort of gaps in the narrative? We were like, I. Mm, I didn't see that like when so it, it's part of that what I was talking about the sort of narrative whiplash in at the start that scene at the party where Laurie is drunk and yeah. leching all everybody and Amy's furious with him and she's been waiting for him she was waiting for him for an hour I, I, I felt I felt like I needed to see that the first time I watched it anyway I felt like I needed to see that moment of of her being stood of her up
1: being stood up right okay
0: yeah I, I, I just I just felt like I kind of missed something and that sort of added to my sense of whiplash and not really quite knowing where i was in sort of space and time
1: right okay Um. yeah i understand (laughs) yeah i don't i didn't feel not in that moment i didn't feel like i missed something okay i have a theory about the film do you want to hear it please i think that the film is about memory okay because okay we're being told the story kind of backwards what everything that we see we're seeing it through joe's remembering of it as she writes the book little women sure which in turn was a sort of remembering that louisa may olcott did of her life in order to write the book little women yes. and i think that the whole thing is about how we remember because there are cert- there are things about the past that are romanticized there's certainly things to do with the aesthetic of the past that joe is remembering mm. that feel romanticized there is a joy that is slightly hysterical And occasionally feels a little bit put on, but I think that's deliberate and I think it works really well. Mm. And I think that the kind of the slight, that whiplash that you said you felt, I think that's, Mm. I I agree with you. And I think it's kind of deliberate because I think it's about, um, it's about how we get flashes of memory uh, that are provoked Mm. by certain textures or places or people. And I think as well that those holes, those holes are there because memory is imperfect and the whole thing feels quite nostalgic it and it feels gappy and it feels like Mm. it feels like a warm remembering especially because we have this kind of thing about like rewriting your history joe is going through the process of writing her own history and i'm sure that we'll come to the end later but i think that the end does that in a really beautiful way
0: i've slightly mixed feelings about about the end if i'm perfectly honest. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I didn't really consider it from that angle. I don't like that, but I'm going to have to ponder it a little bit more. I sort of took it at I sort of yeah, in my kind of fairly basic way. I, I took it a, 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 on a more sort of face value sure. kind of level and was just really swept up in actually the story of two sisters that was what i invested in most through the film was that relationship between joe and amy absolutely and whether they're at war or whether they so obviously there's all the stuff where uh, where amy burns joe's manuscript and that leads to all sorts of recriminations but then you see a whole other side of it a little bit later on after joe's cut her hair off Amy is the one who's comforting her on the stairs when she's in tears having done that yeah having, having said <laughs> Joe, your hair you're one beauty such a great line <laughs> which is such a lovely such line such a great line but I think you're
1: right because those two the sisters kind of fall into two factions I think because they're well no three really because Meg the oldest is different from them because she has very humble aspirations she gets what she wants because she wants her husband and her life and she doesn't mind being poor even though it's Hard, but that's what she wants and that's what she gets. And Beth dies. (laughs) And it is just FYI Beth dies. (laughs) So her world is very limited, whereas obviously Joe is very aspirational in terms Mm. of what she's going to achieve. And Amy is also very aspirational in a different way, but also both of them are mm-hmm. artists. Both of them want their horizons broadened. They want to better themselves. They are kind of two sides of the same coin, and which is why they are so like they spark off each other so much, but also why they're, they're, there is this closeness. And obviously, of course, they both love the same man in different ways oh my god Florence Pugh is so fucking good isn't she yeah she's terrific this is one of the other things that I think about this is why it sort of ties into the memory thing that I was talking about before Mm -hmm. one of the things that this film does which I really love is that they don't try and age her down in anything other than like Florence Pugh's performance yeah for me that that tells me that what we're seeing is like Joe remembering Amy Mm. as a little girl but she's seeing the Amy she knows now like she is remembering remembering her but she also has the adult amy in her head and like it's kind of i just i think that was a really excellent choice because i mean the winona Ryder film it's kirsten dunst Mm -hmm. as um as a little girl plays amy and then suddenly skip forward it's a different actress and you get much more of a sense of time passing quite dramatically whereas obviously in this it all feels a bit more fluid yeah like
0: memory like memory like yeah like yes it does take place and it says early on um seven years earlier
1: oh i completely uh, comes missed up on that, yeah. the screen
0: which i missed the first time and i i caught it my second watch and was like ah yes might have helped if i'd noticed that the first time around um yeah. or sort of retained that bit of information because i sort of didn't have a sense of what span of time the events of the of the story Take place in. Um... Well, can
1: we, shall we try and pin that down? Because actually, I'd forgot. There's basically, there's the point at which, the point where the film starts Mm -hmm. Joe in New York getting a story published. She's living in the yes. boarding house uh, with Friedrich, the professor. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we kind of have a check in with all the sisters to see what they're all up to. So Joe's in New York publishing her short stories. Amy is in Paris with Aunt March attending painting school. Meg is married with children. It's all a bit hard, but fundamentally she's all right. And Beth will die shortly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm,
0: I'm, <laughs> I'm always quite interested in how, how you meet characters yeah. for the first time in a film. Um, and actually, I think the way we meet these four sisters tells us quite a lot. So we meet Jo first, as you say, um, and she's sort of she's there selling her stories and she's got ink all over her hands. And she talks about how she has to support the family unless Amy gets married. So then the next thing we do is we meet Amy in Paris, who is being told that she needs to get married because she's basically the family's only hope. And then the next thing you see is Meg, who, who who's going to buy some fabric for making a dress and she can't afford it so their financial situation is really sort of front and center at the very beginning and then you've got beth who sits at a piano but i guess she's already dead at that point because beth dies
1: <laughs> she does die um
0: so at the point that we meet the other three sisters beth is already dead no she's not no she's not no, no you're absolutely yeah, see, right
1: this is the thing that i got confused with because amy amy and joe are living their artist life away from home and then joe is called back to come and see her and they don't tell amy and then when amy comes back from paris to beth's funeral she's married to laurie and joe then decides not to return to new york so we don't start at the end we kind of start two-thirds of the way through go backwards Jump back to two-thirds of the way through and do the rest of yes. it, but also while jumping back a bit still. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> at the very end, when she's chatting to her bloke in New York, yeah. that is that is the actual last thing. That's the very, very end, isn't it?
0: So, yeah. So, so we've got the start, and then what follows immediately after that is seven years before the start, yeah, and then the end... I presume it's what, like a, a year after.
1: Yeah, because she after Beth dies, she writes the book mm. and gets it yes. and gets it published. The end, I guess, is some some time. After Beth dies?
0: <laughs> yes, the end is sometime after Beth dies. That much we can be certain oh, of. Oh, that
1: was fucking profound. <laughs> Jesus Christ.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the end the end happens after previous events in the film yeah. have taken place. And the then there are Brilliant. some credits which
1: are the proper end, but that's not like part of the film.
0: That's just some words and stuff. It's just
1: words and stuff. Do
0: you, do you feel, like I do, that um, Joe and Amy are essentially competing to see which of them can be the most middle child, middle child. <laughs> there, there can only be one. Can, although Amy is the youngest. <laughs> Amy is the youngest of the middle children.
1: No, Amy's the youngest youngest. No,
0: be- Oh, I thought Beth was youngest. No, Amy, Amy is
1: the youngest. Oh,
0: I've got this all wrong. Amy's, I thought,
1: Amy's a little girl.
0: I thought Beth was a little girl. She seems very little. Mm,
1: that's because she dies.
0: Ah, that's because she dies. Fuck. Okay, I need to go back and watch this for a third time. That was not clear to me at all.
1: Shit. Has this changed your mind? Do you now no longer like the film? Do you find it cold?
0: That makes Florence Pugh's performance make a little bit more sense to me. Than it. I think she's brilliant in the film. But there there were some moments that I was like, oh, she's really being very sort of child there.
1: So obviously you wouldn't have known that if I didn't tell you. So completely without context, do you think that actually that was a good choice to have Florence Pugh play her uh, all the time?
0: I don't know. I... It, it could be that i've been astronomically
1: if, so this is the thing i don't know because i know mm. so you didn't know and you didn't pick up didn't on know. it so actually is it a, is no. it a successful thing
0: i, I guess I, I guess not i don't yeah hm i don't i don't know it just it felt so much like beth was the youngest
1: then maybe that's the thing maybe that is that maybe that is true because obviously she's kept in this kind of state of perpetual childhood because she gets sick at a certain age and then her life doesn't change from there.
0: This feeds into your memory theory. Yes. Yeah, so Joe is remembering Amy as a child but seeing her as she is now. Yes, I, okay, I, I, I have a more complete picture of your memory theory. Ah. I like this. <laughs>
1: with adaptations there's this really difficult thing of like can you look at the film as a success completely separate from anything else that's come before it is it a successful telling of a story does it matter that you didn't quite get what order the sisters were in does any of that matter no
0: that's that's sort of what i was having a war in my own head about just now yeah because it didn't hamper my enjoyment of the story whatsoever that I completely misunderstood Uh, it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't really matter, does it?
0: I had a lovely time and the next time I watch it, I will understand it better. I don't think it could really matter any less. I'm sure that there will be some English literature academics will uh, come at me with pitchforks. Well,
1: as I usually do, I Mm -hmm. had an eye on the costumes because I just like, I like that Ah, shit.
0: Yes, the Oscar award-winning costumes. The
1: Oscar award-winning costumes, however, very controversial, Ed.
0: Very controversial. Oh, interesting.
1: So this film, among people who know, is very looked down on for its costumes.
0: How hilarious!
1: Because they are so inaccurate, and it's true, mm-hmm. they are. However, a costume designer of such high esteem yeah. that that can only be deliberate, right? Yeah, I mean
0: she's she's done a lot of period work.
1: So um, as well, um, for example, her work on Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. very historically accurate, great care taken. So it's not like she doesn't give a shit or she doesn't know what she's doing nope. so this is very but like for example there is a point in the film where emma watson is wearing oak boots right so it's mm. it's obviously very deliberate and in terms of historical accuracy maybe this film is the pits in terms of telling a story <laughs> i think the costumes are gorgeous yeah and well deserving of its oscar
0: also if we are sticking with the the uh, joe's memory yeah. theory and that it's all through Joe's eyes. What attention to the detail of people's clothes do we think Joe actually pays? Exactly. I, I suspect she doesn't give a yeah. shit. Well, <laughs> also, I
1: think there's there's a few quite subtle things in this film that I really like in terms of costume, which it's nice to point them out, but I don't think you would necessarily know. So there's two things. One of them is that the sisters are color coded, so they right. each have a color palette that um mm. they basically dress in only those colors um and sure. i think that's really lovely and i think that that leads leans into my memory theory quite well because yeah maybe th- that's to do with the kind of colors that the people make joe feel and that kind of thing mm. i think that's really nice and the other thing is that um throughout the film joe and laurie played by Tim- timothy chalamet um they uh, they swap clothes quite a lot, mm. so they often will, will will have changed shirts, or we'll be wearing each other's waistcoats, or there'll be like little bits of clothing to have this kind of fluid. Where does he begin, and where does do I start feeling about those yes. kind of childhood memories? Which I just think is really lovely. That's a really lovely detail. That it's just a, a lo- another lovely layer of the onion that you wouldn't necessarily know about.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, that that is all stuff that I didn't consciously pick up on but is absolutely there now that you mention it.
1: Yeah, should
0: we uh, should we chat a little bit about, about the love interests? I would
1: love to chat about the love interests. Should
0: we start with the most obvious one with the uh, old Timothée Chalamet?
1: So um, Laurie, he's an interesting one, isn't he?
0: Yes, his, his his relationship with all of the girls is quite interesting. He sort of uh, he falls out with them and dances with them and uh, plays around with them. Yeah. And
1: I think it, I get the feeling that Laurie is just enveloped mm-hmm. in this merry, warm chaos, and I think. I think it's Mm -hmm. so different from where he lives in this kind of cold, quiet house.
0: With his sad dad. With his
1: sad dad. I don't think it is his dad. I think it's his uncle or something.
0: Sad uncle you're absolutely is right. an uncle yeah.
1: it's some it's not his dad. I don't know where his parents are. Um, I think he just decides that he wants to be in this family somehow. Mm-hmm. It, he falls in love with the family in the house. obviously then falls in love with Joe, but I think it's more as a because she is kind of the human embodiment of all of that energy together and all that kind of fire and merriment and laughter and joy. What do you think? What do you think of Timothee Chalamet?
0: Oh, well, I think he's, I think <laughs> I think he's fucking great. He's in so good.
1: <laughs> I think he's great. I get it.
0: I absolutely get it. I get why they fall for him. Um, and I absolutely get why he falls for them. All of them. I, <laughs> I barely laughed in that Scene towards the end when when the other chap shows up. Friedrich. Friedrich shows up. (laughs) And all Lurry can do in that scene is who is this man? Would someone tell me who this man is? <laughs> Please tell me who is this man. It's it's so funny.
1: And I think that he handles the part really well. I think that he's got exactly the right quality that kind of boy lanky boyish gangly. He's like a fawn sort of staggering mm. around as a youth and then yeah he does have a kind of refined he because he, he, when I sort of saw that it was him I was like yeah I get him as a teenager. But what about when he's, an old, when he's a, a gentleman later? What about that? And I think he does a really good job. I think he's great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, he ends up with the one who was 10 when he met her, having been in love with the one who was, what, 16 yeah. when he met her? I'm sure. Yeah. Maybe. Interesting.
1: Thereabouts. Like, how long is she in Paris with Aunt March for? Because she finds out that she's going to go to Europe at Meg's wedding. And by the time we see her in Paris... Meg has two children, so I get a bit muddled about how all of that. Ma- works.
0: I, yeah, I guess Meg's been married for a while at that point. Yeah, to uh, to hapless John.
1: Hapless John James Norton. Do I mean James Norton? James Norton. Yeah, James. Yeah, Norton. it is
0: James Norton. And he, yeah, he, yeah, he's ever so hapless. Um, but I, I quite like, I quite like that. You, you know, like a hapless male character. He's
1: lovely. He's really <laughs> lovely. And it, you know, again, he is one of these these kind of people who are in the orbit of the March family that desperately want to be part of that family unit, you know?
0: I, I love that scene um, between him and Meg where she's actually been a bit of a dick. And, yeah, she's, she's bought all this fabric and, like, she's talking about how she just... Wants these nice things that the other girls have in the world, and he just goes, "I'm really sorry I couldn't give you the life you wanted." I know. <laughs> just sort of takes it in, and he just. I think. He, I think he genuinely feels that way. I think he genuinely is sorry yeah. that he couldn't measure up to what needs from yeah. him. Yeah, I read.
1: A, yeah. I read a really interesting thing about how, like, kind of on a basic level, each sister represents a flaw that they need to overcome over the course of the story um and for meg it's vanity which i think is interesting because there's the um the ball scene where she goes to a debutante ball um in her dress and one of her rich friends lends her a much more expensive extravagant dress and laurie is a total prick to her to be fair he comes up and he's like he's like really judging her for having this other dress on and for kind of associating with these people like she's better than that so why is she lowering herself and he says to her what would joe say and it's like fuck off laurie like the folly of youth you condescending prick it's uh, so yeah Yeah. and you know quite rightly he apologizes and they both learn something and she has that lovely line about like i'll go back to have to being poor and having a hard life but can i just twirl around and have fun tonight like just give me tonight mm. and she does and that's lovely well I think in that moment she genuinely thinks that is going to be enough for her and then the lesson that she mm. learns is that yeah she she is going to want these things and she can't have them and she needs to let go of that like she needs to be mm. able to let go of the vain part of her that wants 20 yards of um, green fabric to make a new dress from because her husband needs a coat and that's the sacrifice you have yeah. to make I'm trying to think yeah. what the other ones are. I think so. Meg was vanity. Amy was the desire for like, like so society. So that kind of like you know wanting to be um, wealthy and go to the opera and all of this stuff. Beth is um, dying.
0: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's quite quite an obstacle to overcome.
1: I don't think it is dying. I just said that. I can't remember what Beth's is.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's something else. <laughs> Beth's um... is Beth's <laughs> to do with your immune
1: system. Um, no, I can't. I can't remember. <laughs> um, and and Joe's is to do with hot headedness. I mean, I think to our listeners, if you want to read an in depth academic paper, there are loads online. I can't quite remember what I read, but I just think, yeah, that mm. that thing about. Again, also, because like Meg is Meg is supposedly the one with the beauty. She's the beautiful one. I mean. Never mind the fact that all four of these actresses are absolutely fucking stunning. <laughs> so.
0: Eliza Scanlon, who plays Beth, she's given so little to do. She's given so little dialogue. But in the moments that she has, she is just great. Like, you can just, you just look at her and see... The thoughts in her brain.
1: Um, the moment when she's given the piano and mm. her sisters are all, like, flapping around her. The, oh, the work that she does in that moment is so beautiful.
0: Yeah. And of course, she's feeling a little under the weather at that point.
1: Well, she dies, Ed.
0: Well, she d- she does, but at th- that's that's the that's the point where she's just got scarlet fever. Yeah, she's just got back from the Hummels, and I didn't clock this the first time watching it. But essentially, the the whole reason she gets scarlet fever is because she's the only one of them who will ever go and visit the fucking Hummels.
1: Yeah, because um, it's when it's when um, the four girls have been left to their own devices because mommy has gone off to look after Mister yeah. Mister March at war.
0: Yeah, exactly, and yes. Yeah, so, so she goes off to the Hummels and that's where she gets contracts the Scarlet Fever. And when she gets back, Mr. Lawrence has sent the piano down to the house for her. And she immediately rushes off to, to go and thank him. And he, he's so Isn't wonderful, Chris wonderful? Cooper. I love it. When we were talking about our favourite screen performances, we discussed Annette Bening yes. in American Beauty. Chris Cooper in that movie is also brilliant. I tell you, there's something about man. I, I said I was going to use the word warmth a lot. He exudes warmth. Even in American Beauty where he plays a bigoted, abusive, closeted man. He somehow still imbues that character. There is a warmth as a performer. He's got
1: real vulnerability as well.
0: Real vulnerability. That
1: scene where he can't go into the house um, at Beth's funeral mm, because oh like, a, like you kind of can't bear to see him so heartbroken. And when yeah. he comes down the stairs to listen to Beth playing the piano in his house, that lovely, just kind of tender, gentle... Mm. He's, he's he's wonderful isn't he chris cooper
0: and yeah he's he is the first person to he's the person who realizes mm. that beth's ill because she goes to thank him and he's always overjoyed to see her it's like a, a she's like a surrogate daughter mm. to him because he's lost his daughter and he, he just he touches her face and he just says you're, you're burning and the next thing you see they've called a doctor yeah. and she's got scarlet fever yeah from which she ultimately dies beth
1: dies oh okay
0: <laughs> eventually yeah gosh wow <laughs> she goes to the seaside first yeah
1: she has a nice time at the seaside she
0: has a time at the seaside I'm not sure she's enjoying it very much I I think she spends a lot of time on that beach going "Uh, I'm a bit cold I wish you'd just left me in my bed
1: I mean shall we talk about Saoirse Ronan
0: oh can we shall we yeah I feel about Saoirse Ronan pretty much the same way I feel about Kate Winslet she can do no wrong I think she's wonderful
1: that would have been a really good choice Uh, it isn't what I've chosen but I'd really love to see Ammonite where they play lovers oh yeah Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan I would love to see that Period drama Gorgeous windswept love story And two of the finest actresses That there are I uh, think that yeah. sounds great.
0: Yeah, I, I, I actually, I think the, uh, similar sort of things about Sesha Ronan that you've been, you've mentioned about Kate Winslet in the past, that there's a, a maturity, such maturity to her performance. Like there's a there's a bit in Little Women where she and Meg are going to a, a, a dance together, a ball together. And Meg, as the older child, is very much in charge and like is sort of telling her, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But the whole way through, because of Sesha Ronan's sort of just innate, maturity as a performer you know she's younger than meg but she feels older more more worldly I, I don't think wisdom's quite the right word because at the same time she's she's a mess yes
1: yes
0: yeah. <laughs> like joe jo is a mess in in all sorts of wonderful and uh, and harmful ways like harmful to herself
1: saoirse ronan and her performance as joe as well they kind of feel timeless
0: the sort of change that she undergoes so from that first scene that you see her so you, you you first see her she's silhouetted outside the door waiting to go in and you can see just from her body language which is a beautiful piece of physical acting you can see that she's just trying to steal herself to go in and sell this book and then she has her meeting and you can see how sort of insecure she is in her place in the world in her talent in all of that, and then over the course of the movie, uh, where we see before that time, as we've said, and a little after that time as well, you go on a full journey with her to see her become who she eventually will become in that final scene where you go back to uh, the the publisher. It's not really the final. It's not the final scene in the movie, but where we go back to the publisher later on, and she knows her value in the world. She knows what her work is worth, because she knows what it's worth to her, apart from anything else. And I believe her in every moment of that journey. And that 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 is everything that I can say about Saoirse Ronan in this movie, really. It, it is sort of encompassed in that.
1: Beautifully put. There is one moment, Ed. There is one moment that I don't buy. Oh, yeah. I would like to know if, based on what we've been talking about, you think mm-hmm. that this is deliberate. Because, Like I said before, I think there are moments of this film that are heightened. One of the moments is Christmas morning, she's fallen asleep while writing and she looks up and looks out of the window and sees that it's a white Christmas and she says, Merry Christmas, world. And I did not buy that. That felt twinkly and Mm -hmm. a bit sickly and it didn't feel authentic. Am I just being overly critical? It just kind of made me cringe. No,
0: the, the, the Christmas sections are, I think, I think intentionally, hallmark.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: And you've got those that that sort of that slightly orange hue mm. to everything. I think it's intentional, and I think it does play into what you're saying about about memory and idealised memories and sort of viewing events how you want or or, or, or in ways that would make you feel most comfortable or able to process
1: mm. yeah i know what you mean that moment just stuck out a little bit i think it's because it ha- it takes place in a moment where she's alone and i'm mm. a bit like who are you performing this for
0: it's 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 scary she's she's away from everything she's known for the first time trying to make it in the world she's got to support her family by selling these stories that she doesn't really believe in that's an important point actually the stories she's trying to sell she doesn't really believe in them she just believes that they will sell because they're what she thinks people want to read because that's what she's been told um and it's uh friedrich the love interest who calls her on that and that's an interesting scene that 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 fight they have I love
1: that scene I love the way that he goes like i think they're not very good. <laughs> it's like, well, I yeah, think they're not good. <laughs> I think that there's a um, there's a there's a strand of this film as well, which I think is about the creative process and the romanticization mm. of the creative process. And yes, Joe's creative process up to the point that she goes to New York is extremely romantic. She is writing by candlelight in costume late into the night, and she, it's all very when you're young and you write. It's mm-hmm. kind of what you think being a writer will look like, and he. He's the first person who challenges her on what the actual adult professional version of her as a writer looks like and she runs away from it because it's frightening and then she she discovers what the professional writer in her is as opposed to the writer mm-hmm. the kind of hobby writer or the the child writer it's kind of her bidding goodbye to her childhood you know it's interesting because mm. there's that scene when Meg gets married and um joe says to her she's like oh we'll run away together um you don't have to get married and she says i can't believe this is the end of childhood and it's like it's the end of childhood for meg but not for you and i think that conversation with friedrich where he critiques her work that's the end of joe's childhood how interesting maybe it's the beginning of the end and i think maybe her sitting down to write Little Women yes, back in that context that she used to write in as a child, but she's coming to that space as an adult. And I love that Mm -hmm. thing about her. Like, she's laying all of her pages out on the floor and, like she's she's discovering a new creative process that is her adult process and it's sparked by his critique but then it kind of comes fully to fruition and i think that that is joe's departure from childhood that is her becoming an adult
0: yes um i like that and yeah she needs to go through all those that she needs to get that feedback from Friedrich in the first place to knock her and then after that beth dies um which like completely yeah Destroys her, and then she needs to build herself back up again. And it's in that moment she becomes an adult. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right.
1: Like Jo, she is a person who has been her entire life her creative endeavour has been supported and nurtured and everyone has told her how wonderful she is and he's the first mm-hmm. person who says these aren't good but you are good Yes, and you can be good That what a shock for her
0: and he, he's he's flabbergasted that, that he, she's never had anybody give her feedback like this she's never had anybody I, th- I, think, I think the word is respect that he uses like you, you don't have anybody who respects you
1: if you just go through your life with everybody telling you you're brilliant then your work isn't really work it's like in order to do the Job of writing, you have to confront the stuff about it that can be improved or isn't good or whatever. It's like there's a process to it. So he and he, it's like, yeah, he he is showing her the most respect that anybody's ever shown her. Like Laurie mm-hmm. showed her deranged love, but he didn't show her yes. respect, you know?
0: Uh, should we talk about Marmy for a minute?
1: I'd love to. Yeah. Laura Dern. Oh, Isn't she great? I love that scene between Marmee and Joe, where sh- she kind of reveals to Joe that she has had to practice for forty years to kind of keep her temper.
0: Yes, well, we that that is sort of a, a huge thread of of her character because that that's how how we first meet her is holding something in. So we first we first meet Marmee; um, she's returning home. Uh, she's seen the dreadful state that the Hummels are in Um, and she's really, it's really upset her but it's Christmas morning and she goes in the house and she stops and she looks at the girls and you can see that she doesn't want to do what she's about to do which is kind of spoil Christmas morning. So she takes a moment, she watches and then she puts a smile on her face and goes and sees them and she's holding so much in and then she broaches the subject of donating their Christmas breakfast to the Hummels and the pride she feels in her girls when they agree to it and they do it. And then obviously it's all rewarded when they get back and Mr. Lawrence has provided an app Absolute banquet for oh them. Oh my
1: god! It's like in um, you know in you know in Hook where they have that yes. banquet.
0: So yeah, big tick for Laura Dern in this. She's terrific.
1: It's an interesting strand. The the kind of Aunt March. This the, the idea that that Marmee kind of lowered herself in order to marry Mister March, and she as Aunt March says, ruined herself.
0: Yes, I, I like that little exchange between yeah. the two of them.
1: It's really good, and I also yeah. love I love that Aunt March basically goes around all the members of the family. um, mm-hmm trying to instill upon them the importance of like sorting their shit out and um because they because they'll all be ruined they'll all be ruined they'll all be and they're all like sure aunt march yeah whatever (laughs) if the girls are reflect and the girls in the home are a reflection of the values of their
0: parents
1: then yeah gorgeous people that i love dearly
0: until i looked at On IMDB, I thought they were all calling it Aunt Marge. Oh right. As in as in Marge Simpson.
1: Yeah.
0: I've had an absolute disaster with this movie in some ways. (laughs) 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 So yeah. Ant March, in the hands of a different actor, could be really quite severe. But Meryl Streep's got just enough of a twinkle. She's got just enough warmth that she's not nasty. She genuinely wants the best for these people, her sort of extended family. And actually, it's just, just more despairing than anything else of the terrible choices that they all make in her eyes
1: i know i love that um i love that little chat that she has with amy where she's like yeah joe's a lost cause mega's ruined beth's, her life, Ill. <laughs> beth's gonna die um so you're the only one who can get your shit together so you need to listen really carefully to me and then yeah. she, and she doesn't she doesn't listen to her
0: you know? No, no, no. Yeah, but it's like Amy is her last hope for this family, which is a lot to put on Amy's shoulders. And you, you, you get that sense right from the very start, from that first scene where you meet Amy and Aunt March there in the carriage. You get that sense that a lot is being put on Amy.
1: I uh, sorry, just to come back to Amy and Florence Pugh and how incredible she is. What I absolutely love is that at no point does Laurie actually propose to anyone. He just, <laughs> he just kind of goes like, mm, and then they look at him and they're like no (laughs) both of them both times um joe is like no and amy is like no but i love that exchange that they have it's so economical where she's like i've been second to joe my whole life and i'm not going to i'm not going to be the woman that you just settle for not when i've loved you my whole life do you remember when we used to do improv at drama school and where there was like that golden rule where it was like okay you need as quickly as possible you need to establish who you are, what your relationship is to the person you're talking to, what time it is and where you are. um, And it's like that. It's just like, bosh, 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 bosh. I, I now know everything I need to know about how you feel about this proposal and you've only said three things. It, it's it's beautiful. It's so good.
0: Uh, yeah, I have nothing to add to that. It is, it's, it's a great scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've, they've, they've got, Terrific chemistry. Timothee Chalamet and Florence Pugh, they've got such great chemistry. Yeah, I I love that scene where where they reconcile after they've learned that Beth has died.
1: And he, as well, he's like, I know that you hate me, but I just couldn't let you go alone. Like, important bond. And actually, that thing of like, no, Laurie is a good egg. He's a good guy.
0: He's just a bit lost, particularly after he's been refused his proposal of marriage by by Joe I
1: think as well because there's this idea that like maybe he's come into his inheritance or something so he's like come of age is that have I got that right I get the feeling that suddenly he is like independently wealthy and he doesn't need to go to school anymore and he can like
0: oh you could be right about that because
1: yeah. I think he's really wealthy we could we could find out by googling it but the impression I get from the film is that he his parents are dead and he is under the charge of his uncle and then he comes of age and comes into his fortune
0: yes I think that's correct
1: Amy married marrying him has achieved what she wanted to achieve in marrying someone with wealth and being able to that wonderful scene where they're in her studio and she's talking about how marriage is an economic proposition and she's kind of just like, She's schooling him. Yes. I love it. I love that scene so much. Ah, yeah. The whole ah. thing. <laughs> the
0: do whole you know, the whole thing.
1: What we what we could do now is just go through the entire film bit by bit and just go, wasn't that great? Wasn't that great?
0: We could. Let's not do that. It doesn't make for good listening.
1: Shall we talk about the ending though? Because now yes. I believe you said you had thoughts and I'm intrigued.
0: Yeah, I've got I've got mixed feelings about the ending. For the simple reason that, so by highlighting the incongruity of the ending of the actual story, she, when I say she, I mean Greta Gerwig, takes me out of the story. And consequently, the last 15, 20 minutes doesn't have the emotional impact on me that it otherwise would. So what what happens when she goes and sees the publisher, he says, so why why doesn't she get married? And there's this whole sort of metatextual conversation about how mercenary the ending is and how it's not true to the rest of the story and to the character of Joe, to have this romantic ending uh, where she hooks up with Friedrich that sort of uh meta approach it kind of came out of the blue a little bit I liken it to it's it, did you see the, uh, the uh, David Copperfield with Deb Patel
1: no I haven't seen it yet
0: so there's there's a moment in that where it basically goes yeah and uh Dickens didn't think this character really worked, so you just stop stopped writing her. Right, okay. <laughs> um, is essentially the the, the yeah. crux of the crux of it. Um, but it kind of worked a little better in that because there's a more sort of metatextual narrative conceit mm. to that movie than there is to this. So it took me out of it, and I didn't really fully get back into it because mm. it was just going. Okay, so this is the end. And it's actually it's a bit silly the way the way Joe ends up with Friedrich and they have a kiss under an umbrella. And it's all just a bit naff, isn't it? And I was like, oh, okay, I've been invested in this movie for two hours and you can't change the ending of the book. There'd be outcry. So you sort of you have to have the two characters getting together. I don't don't know how I would deal with it because it would feel incongruous to me anyway so what what i wanted was for him to read her manuscript i wanted to come back to that previous um row they'd had i i what the resolution i wanted from that relationship was i wanted him to read her book and love it you know what i mean and I would be okay for them to get married, but not in so overtly a romantic way. That isn't earned in their relationship. What would be earned in their relationship is mutual respect and understanding on a sort of professional artistic level. And we and we so we don't we don't get that resolution that I really want on screen. I'm sure it happens off screen. I can fill in that blank for myself, but I do want to see that. And yes, the film sort of reveals itself about. Being about Joe being able to publish her her work and her book, and that is all lovely, but that would have had more impact for me as well, had it not been undercut by going, isn't the end of the book a bit naff and a bit mercenary? And I understand, I know Greta Gerwig has talked in interviews about how Louisa May Alcott never married and had sort of similar feelings about Joe getting married and not. It not necessarily being true to story and how uh, she Greta Gerwig wanted to readdress that and tell the story in a way that Louise Mailcott might have approved of and been able to do now so I, I get all of that it just kind of it just sort of dampened my enthusiasm for the story that I'd been told for the Proceeding two hours.
1: Sort of hearing you describe it like that, it does feel a bit like um, Grego, we're going like, we're too cool for this shit. Like we have to do it. And I suppose for those of us, and I absolutely include myself in that, for those of us who want to see a big romantic declaration under an umbrella in the rain, mm-hmm. it kind of makes you feel a little bit silly for wanting that.
0: Yes, I think that's true. So it's yeah. kind
1: of like she's giving it to us, but then but she's kind not. of going like, here, here. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. Uh, like yeah. Offering, you a, offering you a chair and then pulling it out from under you at the last minute. I think at the end of the Winona Ryder version, the 1994 version. So I don't know if this is in the book, so please correct. Uh, listeners, write in and let us know. The way that they bring Friedrich back into the story... Is that mm-hmm. Joe has already turned the big house into a school, and um, it's Friedrich who turns up with her manuscript to let her know that she, it's going to be published.
0: Oh right, Huh.
1: So I think that he's he kind of turns up to deliver the news, yes, um, and is like, "Your book is your book is wonderful. I read it anyway. I'll be going now." And then she runs after him and is like, "Don't go! I don't want you to go." And he's like, "Ah, but I, I, I like, I love you, but I don't have anything to offer you." Think that that maybe is a really good way of resolving that kind of respect issue. That kind of this is quite a mature relationship.
0: In in that version, you don't get that fabulous scene uh, between Joe and the publisher.
1: The, the, you know, uh, Greta Gerwig's version. The love story is with Joe and her work, not with her and this guy. And and that is a very poignant message. But I do also want to see a lovely smooch under an umbrella in the rain, and I'm allowed to want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm getting the feeling that your impression of the film hasn't changed over the course of the discussion. What, what, what do you reckon?
0: Oh well, the, uh, my impression of the film has changed in some ways. Um, I, I now understand it better <laughs> <laughs> because because you've explained it to me.
1: Well, also, um, right, massive disclaimer: I might be wrong about a lot of the stuff that I've told oh, you.
0: I am certain you're correct.
1: <laughs> Honestly. The, the, the little womenites are going to come for us hard.
0: <laughs> but, yeah. um, no,
1: So, I mean, obviously, sincere apologies for any of the stuff that we've got wrong. and I do, But I do genuinely, completely aside from all of that stuff, and even if you had merri- merrily gone along thinking that Amy was older than Beth and all of that stuff, I don't think any of that matters. I think it's a fucking
0: gorgeous film. I've never been somebody who needs to understand every little thing that's happening in a film. Like some people really can't handle not getting a thing. I'm perfectly happy coming out of a film going, I don't know what the fuck that was about, but I had a good time. You know, if I did have a good time.
1: I think as well, like with this film in particular, I mean, especially since I have chosen to view it through the lens of memory, it kind of doesn't matter, all those little bits and bobs, because it's all a kind of amorphous blob. And that's sort of that. That's great. I really like that. It's vagaries for me kind of enhance my reading of it, which is only my reading and people may disagree. But yeah,
0: the people who disagree, they can get their own damn readings.
1: Get your own damn readings, frankly. Do you know what? <laughs> Write a hate post to the costume department about how it's got Ugg boots in.
0: I'm sure, the, I'm, I'm sure the designer will cry over her Oscar.
1: Clutching her Oscar to her breast. So, I mean, has it come to the time? Are you going to start telling me what you think I've chosen?
0: We're going to play the game. We're
1: going to play the game. So what would you have chosen? What do you think I've chosen? And then I'll reveal.
0: I, I'm going to keep it very straightforward this week. Um, in the past, I've kind of meandered around a little bit while coming to my conclusions. This week, very simply, I think I would have chosen to uh, follow Sesha Ronan, go back to the start of her career, um, watch a film I've never seen It was a breakout performance in Hannah.
1: Interesting. Contentious. I don't know if it was her breakout role. I think that's Atonement.
0: I thought Hannah came before Atonement. I don't remember her in Atonement.
1: She was very little.
0: I know I've seen her face on the posters for Hannah.
1: Hannah's good fun. I mean, if you like Sasha Ronan, watch her kick the shit out of some guys. It's great fun.
0: Yeah, I'd love to see that. And I, I'm a bit sort of, yeah, a bit sort of lukewarm sometimes towards Joe Wright's films. It, it feels atypical for him. It feels like an atypical movie for Joe Wright.
1: I suppose because he for a bit was like the period drama fil- um, book adaptation guy. Yes. So yeah, I think that Some of his films, like his Pride and Prejudice is one of my favourite films. I love it. I think it's gorgeous. Yes, I like that. Um, I also really enjoyed his Anna Karenina.
0: I didn't like Darkest Hour very much.
1: Oh, I didn't see it. Um, It didn't appeal. Didn't he also do a Peter Pan film?
0: (laughs) He did, which has been widely panned. Um, Yeah, yeah. Forgive the... I mean, it's not really even a pun, is it, to say (laughs) that Pan got panned? Um... (laughs) Do you know, it's so... (laughs) It's just there. (laughs) It's
1: so obvious. I missed it. When you said it,
0: I was like, what are you talking about?
1: Okay. Okay, so you would go for Hannah. Uh, What do you think I've gone for?
0: I'm very worried because, as you know, I like to, if I can, watch these things twice. I'm very worried (laughs) that that you will be following a a sort of theme of... Uh, American Civil War movies, and I'm going to end up trying to watch Gone with the Wind twice, and that'll be eight hours of my week.
1: <laughs> Do you know Ed? I that was up until about ten minutes ago. I was undecided <gasps> between Gone with the Wind and what I've actually gone for. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I haven't chosen Gone with the Wind, but you were exactly right to think that. So I was having a bit of a think, and I was like, okay, Gone with the Wind for me is like the obvious one. It's such an important film in terms of the history of cinema, but. I mean, I've got it on DVD, and you've got to turn the DVD over to get to the sac- to get to the <laughs> second half of it. So th- this is what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, my my DVD of The Godfather Part Two is on two discs. Amazing.
1: Where does it? Where do you have to change the disc?
0: Yeah, some, somewhere around the Cuban Revolution, I think.
1: Well, uh, well, appropriate. Um, <laughs> yes. So yeah, I haven't gone with Gone with the Wind, and then there were a few other American Civil War films that I wondered about and didn't uh, go for. Dances with Wolves being one of them, which I've never seen. I don't. To be honest with you, I don't really know anything about it. But they play the main type, the main theme on classic FM all the fucking time. So I know that very mm. well. Uh, the other thing that I was wondering about, I was t- noodling around with the idea of um, a group of siblings and actually, uh, and just give a sh- little shout out to my friend Stuart, who really wanted us to watch Thunderbirds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I know, um, <laughs> with Bill Paxton there's so many people in this Thunderbirds yeah, it's, film
0: it's a live action Thunderbirds yeah, isn't it yeah it's uh, I mean I have, I have seen bits of it on the yeah I,
1: I, ju- I just really don't want to watch that film so I haven't chosen it no sorry Stuart and then yeah groups of siblings are the ones I was thinking of like okay we could watch The Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice Big Group of Sisters all that kind of thing I haven't done any of that Ed this is entirely selfish because it's one of my favourite films ever and I know that it's also one of yours um, and I just thought that you and I would have the fucking best time ever and it was going to happen at some point we're going to watch Jurassic Park <laughs> <laughs>
0: um yeah i i don't need to watch Jurassic Park twice no I could probably take notes right now without watching I know. it. I, I feel like we could
1: probably roll on into the next episode recording now.
0: We could probably do that, yeah. Um, so welcome to the Unbreakable <laughs>
1: Movie Chain, the the podcast that was always leading to this point, which is a discussion of Jurassic Park. No, um, I I was also going to do a um, guess the film, and I wanted to do my impression, and uh, I wanted to go, shoot Shooter!
0: <laughs> Oh yeah no Jurassic Park I've thought so on on our list of top 10s one of our potential top 10s for the future is best death yeah. scene there is one in <laughs> Jurassic Park that is on my list for sure.
1: I mean, it's Dude in the Toilet, no?
0: I couldn't possibly oh, say. okay. Fair enough. <laughs> we have to wait for that one to eventually oh God, okay, come around.
1: Okay, maybe I'll cheat the drawing <laughs> system um, for the episode after animation so we can do death scene. I have to say, I'm really looking forward to when we come to do top 10 death scenes. I just, I can't wait. Uh, yeah, that's going to be great fun. Yes. Excellent. Jurassic Park. Follow- just, sorry, I didn't mention the link. It's Laura Dern. Beautiful, luminous Laura Dern. We're following her. uh, And we're going to watch 1993's Jurassic Park, which is available for um yeah i think you have to rent it i don't i wasn't able to find anywhere where it's streaming as part of the as your subscription so i think you've got to rent it if you don't already own it but it's only a couple of quid in all the usual places all that remains is to say a massive thank you for listening to this week's episode of the unbreakable movie chain um if you like what you hear then please do subscribe rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and please do get in touch with us we would love to hear from you you can do that on all the social medias and you can also email us at movie chain at outlook.com so for want of anything else to say see you later laters, later's bye, bye.